And it's well been said, many have missed salvation by 12 inches between here and here. It's here in the mind, but it's not in the heart, for with the heart man confesses unto righteousness. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Although we're in a study of the book of Romans, chapter 3, we'll be spending a fair amount of time in chapter 2 of the book of James today. That's because Romans 3.27 tells us that salvation is by faith, while much of James chapter 2 indicates that faith without works is a dead faith. So to help shed light on this seeming paradox, Pastor Brogy picks up the thought in James 2, verse 14. James is going to ask and answer the question, What is the relationship between faith and works? What is the relationship between your creed and your conduct? What is the relationship between your belief and your behavior? An issue that Paul has already addressed, if you've been with us, in Romans chapter 2. So let's first look at dead faith. To introduce his argument, he asks some rhetorical questions that demand an answer, and we need to carefully study them. Notice question 1 in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren... If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, underline that word says, circle it in your mind. He's describing a confessing believer who has words without works. What use of it? And of course, the anticipated answer is no use at all. Then he asks the second question in verse 14. Can that faith save him? Essentially, he's saying, can that kind of phony faith save him? And of course, the answer is no. Now, in Greek grammar, there's two ways in which you can frame a question. One way demands a positive answer. The other structure demands a negative answer. He's using the latter here. And so by the way he frames the question, he's in essence saying, absolutely not. That kind of phony faith cannot save a man. Now, the Bible teaches that salvation is the gift of God, and that when you receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life, you become a new creation. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit who works on you comes to live inside of you, everything changes. And works are produced as the byproduct of salvation. Now, of course, spiritually speaking, faith is invisible. You cannot cut my body open and say, oh, yep, there's faith right there. No, it's invisible. How do you see a person's faith? The only way James argues that you can see a person's faith is by his works, by his changed life, which brings him to a third question where he illustrates the first two questions. It's a hypothetical situation. Notice verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, underscore that word says. Again, he's talking about profession. And notice he's talking about a brother or a sister. He's not talking about just anyone who shows up at your front door. The illustration is of a member of the body of Christ. Now, certainly, the Scripture does not limit our compassion to Christians only. But that's where it is to start, and that's where it focuses in the New Testament. Uh, Paul will write the Galatians, and he says, So then... While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith, especially Christians. So when you see, when you become a member of the body of Christ, when you're born again, you begin to assume an unlimited liability for those who are members of that body. Now notice too, he says that this person 
does not have adequate food or clothing. He says without clothing, the word that's used in the original does not mean he's stark naked, but someone who's insufficiently clothed. The thought is he's, he's cold due to a lack of proper clothing. And then the phrase in need of daily food does not indicate starvation, but someone who's hungry, someone who's without adequate food for the day. And then circle the word need in verse 15. And then in verse uh, 16, the word necessary. James is talking about someone who needs the basics. He's not talking about someone who comes to your door and says, you know, uh, I need a new Cadillac or a new stereo or a new DVD. No, he's talking about the absolute essentials of life. And the Greek tense that he uses describes an ongoing continual plight, indicating that this is a problem that's been going on. Uh, now, that's the context of his illustration. Look at verse 16 now in its entirety. When one of you says to this person in need of food and clothing, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for the body, what use is that? So he's saying, what use is that? The King James says, what profit is it? The net and I think the ESV both read, what good is it? No good at all. Can that kind of faith save him? The kind of faith that is never seen in practical works? And of course, the answer is no. Empty statements, pious words do not fill empty stomachs and clothe cold backs. Any declaration or profession of faith that does not result in a changed life, James is arguing, is a false declaration. Now, today we talk a lot in our evangelical churches about so-and-so made a profession of faith. And sometimes when people come down front, how do you know if it's genuine? Well, you can only take them at their word, but the real test of genuineness is time. Sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll say, I know he's been living with his girlfriend for a decade, but he made a profession of faith. Thank God my son's going to heaven. Maybe he's not going to heaven. Maybe he just has words without any reality. There's a lot of people like that in our day. And so now in having given his argument in verse 14 and then having illustrated it, notice verse 17 how he applies it. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Underscore those last two words, by itself. Faith by itself is nothing but words. It's nothing but a mere profession if it has not produced a changed life. That kind of faith is a dead faith. It is lifeless. It is unable to save. See, the person who simply says, be warm, be filled, has a verbal faith because he does nothing about it. Now, someone could read a text like that and say, man, I better get on the stick Start take, caring for people who are cold and feeding hungry people. Listen, James could have used 10,000 different illustrations. He could have used all kinds. Of, he could have said, the person who says, I'm a Christian, but he never fellowships or cares for God's people. He's got a dead faith. Why? Well, as John says, by this we know we pass out of death into life. We love the brethren. When you're born again and you're indwelt by the Spirit, you become family members with other born-again Christians. And one of the marks that you know God, that you love God, is that you love His people. You love His family. And so James is dealing with a person who says, yes, I'm going to heaven because I have faith in God. And the truth of the matter is, is it's not a genuine faith. 
And there are scores of people like that who fill our evangelical churches. Christ is not eminent in their thinking. He has nothing to do with their finances. He has not changed their crass vocabulary or their sensual dress. He has nothing to do with their plans, with their careers, with their reading material, with their schedules. Uh, they may give token attention on Sunday morning for an hour or so, but he has really not fundamentally changed their life. And James would argue it is a dead faith, it is intellectual only. Now, there are people who know the, the plan of salvation and the doctrines of salvation, and they think, therefore, they must be saved. And James is going to argue before we're finished here, no, genuine faith brings new life, and new life brings a changed life. Now, that's dead faith, all right? Secondly, verse 18, he moves now to demonic faith, demonic faith. Look, if you will, at verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I want you to notice two things. First, the introductory phrase. Someone may well say. It's actually a future tense. It's a little wooden in English, but if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, it tells you it's a future. Someone will in the future say. In other words, James is anticipating the objection of those people who think, I have faith and works aren't important. The second thing I want you to notice, again, is this word say. It's a recurring word all the way through the paragraph. He's talking about profession. In other words, someone who's trying to make it an option. The New English Bible, which was a British paraphrase, puts it this way. Here is one who claims to have faith and another who points to his deeds. But understand, the Bible never makes it an option. It's not faith or works. It's a faith that works. James says, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Circle those words, show me. He's talking about a show-me kind of justification. James, in essence, is saying to say you have real faith, but not to have any kind of works that will prove it, is to have the same kind of faith a demon has. So he says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. Now forget for just a moment those people who call themselves atheists or agnostics. Think about the demonic world. You know, there's been a number of surveys done from time to time, the most recent, the Pew Research, but there was a survey done a few years back by Gallup, and he surveyed all the Baptists in America, not all of them, but a high percentage to make it a credible survey, and, and he discovered that 98% of Baptists said there is a God. I'm sure God was impressed with that, don't you? Then he surveyed the Methodists. The Methodists said 92% said there's a God. Then he surveyed the Presbyterian, you know, God's frozen, it's chosen. They said 95% of them believed there was a God. But if you could survey every single demon in heaven above and in hell beneath, 100% of them would say there is a God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. That's the Shema read every Sabbath day across the world for centuries. It's the confession of every Jew. It's the confession of every Christian. It's a central doctrine to our faith. Do demons believe it? Yes, they believe God is one, and they believe it so much so they shudder. 
And the word is used of someone's hair standing up on the back of their neck. It means literally to bristle. Now, there are some people who've been born again, and they, or some people who think they've been born again because they have the right creed. Demons have the right creed. Others think they're born again because they've had an emotional experience. Listen, these demons have an emotional experience. They shudder, they tremble. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, describes a man who goes out and sows seed, and some hear the word and receive it with joy. There's your emotional experience. They believe for a while here, but not here, and so they fall away. It's not real, genuine faith. It's demon faith. James wants us to understand that demons have an impeccable doctrinal statement. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great fundamentals preacher, been in heaven now for 50 years, he said, and I quote, there will be enough fundamentalists in hell to start a fundamentalist convention. That's a profound statement if you think about it. And it's very similar to what James is saying here. Demons can be very orthodox. And if you've ever done a study on demonology, and you read the statements they make in the New Testament, they are profoundly accurate. They believe in the triunity of God. In Matthew 8, they affirm that Jesus is God in human flesh when he says, Son of God, leave us alone. In Luke 4, they believe he's Messiah, the anointed one. The Christ, the one who would come and die for our sins. When uh, there he says, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. And Luke 8, they knew there was a literal, actual, eternal place of punishment for the wicked. And so they began to beg him not to order them to depart into the abyss. In Matthew chapter 1, a demon, Mark chapter 1, a demon correctly confesses, I know you are the Holy One of God. And in the same book, Mark 5, they affirm that he is the sovereign judge of the universe when one demon by the name of Legion, speaking on behalf of many, begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. My friend, you can be very orthodox you can pass an extensive theological exam and die and go straight to hell. Now, it's one thing for a person to die and go to hell because they've never heard the plan of salvation. It is quite another thing to be very orthodox in your creed and having just the same kind of faith that a demon has. It is far worse to embrace it intellectually and to even have had an emotional experience like demons who shudder, but then to have missed salvation. And it's well been said, many have missed salvation by 12 inches between here and here. It's here in the mind, but it's not in the heart, for with the heart man confesses unto righteousness. And if you can make some profession of your faith that has not shown up in your life, and you think everything's fine, the devil rejoices because he has you in his clutches. So James asks, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Again, he's been describing two kinds of faith. A dead faith that's without any outward evidence, it's words without action, and then a demonic faith that are words without worship. And that's not the kind of faith that will bring you into the kingdom of God. So he deals with a third kind of faith, what I'm calling a dynamic faith. Now, the paragraph that follows is very, very important. It's important that you be able to explain it. Many non-Christians will use this to say there are mistakes in the Bible. 
Some will ask you of this text because they're trying to put verses together. And it's a, it's a section of Scripture that Christians have often asked me, well, I'm just trying to understand this. Help me to understand it because I know there's no contradictions in the Bible. So I want you to understand this portion of Scripture. Now, let me say parenthetically, even Martin Luther had trouble with this portion of Scripture. In fact, when he read it, he thought it was so opposed to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the writers in the New Testament that he believed the book of James was not inspired. He called James for a long time a right, starry epistle. Because he thought that since God can make no mistakes and since one writer contradicted all the other writers of the New Testament, that James must not be inspired by God. Of course, by the end of his life, he was able to reconcile the two texts and he understood that there was no contradiction at all. So this is a very, very important paragraph because there are so many evangelical Christians today who say they are saved, but they give absolutely no evidence. Now, earlier he used a hypothetical illustration. Now he uses two real-life illustrations beginning with Abraham. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, he was. Uh, you see, he says that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, do you see the quote here in verse 23? The change of typeset, if you're using the NAS, tells you it's from the Old Testament. And if you have marginal notes and you go out into the margin at verse 23, it will tell you that it comes from Genesis 15, 6. Keep that in mind. Now, look at verse 24. James concludes, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me again read to you Romans 3.28 where the collision, supposed collision, takes place. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works. Now we know better that there are no contradictions in the Bible. And we know that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And you cannot have hundreds of passages in the Word of God that teach that we're saved by grace through faith apart from any works. And then to try to bleed works together with faith to call that saving faith because it is not. Romans, as I think most of you are coming to know if you didn't know it already, it's one of the most detailed treatises in all of the Bible on the plan of salvation. So James says a man is justified by works. Paul says a man is justified by faith apart from any good works. Well, who's right? They're both right. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. They're complementing each other. And we need to understand how they complement each other. You say, well, how do you know they're not contradicting? How do you know they complement each other? For at least three reasons. Number one, in the first place, James is writing to Christian Jews. And he's not writing to counter what Paul was saying because Paul hadn't said anything at this point. If you were with us in our New Testament survey, James was one of the earliest books in the New Testament to be written. So he's not countering anything that Paul wrote. Paul hadn't even begun his first missionary journey when this epistle is written. Secondly, if you know Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, a council that God actually had, there's a lot of councils called by that name that God had nothing to do with, like the Council of Trent. But at the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts chapter 15, James, the half-brother of Christ, because Jesus, of course, had no human father. Someone asked me that after the first service. What do you mean, half-brother? Um, he's the half-brother of Christ. He's an apostle. And there at Acts 15, they reaffirm together 
that a man is saved by grace through faith apart from any good deeds. And James is there. He's leading the conference. In Galatians 2, James extends to Paul the right hand of fellowship, indicating they were in perfect agreement. The third reason, and perhaps the most important, is the difference in terms. Both James and Paul uses the word justify, but in two entirely different contexts with two entirely different meanings. Now remember, in every language, words take on their meaning and their context. In some languages, like Greek, like English, there are some words that mean the same thing in whatever context you use. There are other words that change their meaning depending on the context. When I use the word cool, am I referring to temperature or am I referring to something that's really neat? When I use the word pool, am I referring to a carpool? Am I referring to the game of pool? Um, what am I speaking of? Context determines. Well, please understand that Paul is using the term justification in terms of declaration, whereas James is using in his context the word justification in terms of vindication, in terms of proof. So when Paul uses the term, he's speaking of the fact that God declares us, apart from anything we've done, each and every believer to be holy and righteous in his sight. He declares them to be saints. Whereas on the other hand, James is dealing with the validation of righteousness. He's saying we justify or we prove ourselves, we prove our faith by our works. Paul is dealing with inward justification. James is dealing with outward justification. Here in our passage, Paul is dealing with the means of justification. James is dealing with the marks of justification. Paul is dealing with the root of justification. James is dealing with the fruit of justification. Paul is speaking about justification before God. James is speaking about justification before men. And the words of the Protestant reformers were saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, I hope you still have Romans 3. Go back there. Hold your finger. Don't lose James. We're not done. Go back to Romans 3. What I find so fascinating, if you look across the page to Romans chapter 4, James, like Paul, quote the identical passage of Scripture but each one does it to prove something entirely different. Look at Romans 4, verse 1. We're going to study this in our next time together, God willing. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? What did Abraham discover? For if Abraham was justified, saved, declared righteous by works, by deeds, he has something to boast, to brag about. But he quickly adds, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And notice, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Identical quote that we just read in James 2.23 from Genesis 15.6. And to show that we're saved by grace through faith apart from any works, he says in verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what's due? One of my grandsons sitting up there worked hard for me yesterday picking up sticks, and I got a dollar in my pocket, a dollar coin to give you before you leave today. When I give him that coin, I won't say, this is a gift. He'll say, granddaddy, I worked for that dollar. You owe it to me. It's an obligation. But, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, his faith is counted as righteousness. So 
the person God counts as righteous does not work because he sees himself as missing the mark, as being ungodly, and he simply puts his faith in God who can count him as righteous. So Paul uses Abraham to say we're not saved by works. James uses Abraham to show we are saved by works. Now go back to James 2 and let's put them together. James 2 verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So James wants to show us that Abraham did not have a dead faith or a demonic faith, but he had a dynamic faith. He wants to show us that he had a faith that both worked and worshipped. And critical to your understanding of this text of scripture is to look at the order of the two Old Testament quotations, right over verse 21, there in James 2.21, right over the top of the verse, Genesis 22, all right? And then over verse 23 of James 2, write Genesis 15. If you miss the order, you'll miss the point he's making. When James looks at Abraham and he asks here in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, he was. When it says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, how do you know whether that was genuine faith apart from the fact that the Bible tells us? James says, here's how you know. Forty years later, he proved he had genuine faith, that he had a faith that both worked and worshipped when he was willing to obey God and take his uniquely begotten born son, Isaac, who's an illustration of Christ, and lay him there on the altar and put a knife through his body until God stopped him. So Abraham did not simply have a faith of words. He had a faith that worked and worshipped. And so his faith was confirmed 40 years later about why he, what he did up there in Mount Moriah. And so verse 23 says, and the scripture was fulfilled. Underline that word fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he's called the friend of God. In what sense was the scripture fulfilled? Not in terms of Abraham getting saved, but in terms of Abraham proving his salvation. And so James, having stated what Abraham did, quotes Genesis 15, what he believed 40 years earlier, to show that he had a genuine faith. Abraham exhibited his true faith in God by being willing to sacrifice the one earthly thing that was more precious than any other earthly thing he had. And that's because he knew that God in heaven had far greater things for him than just Isaac. Is your faith real? Would you be willing to sacrifice all that you had if God called you to it? Or would you just walk away saddened as did the rich young ruler, illustrated by Jesus in Matthew 19? This is not just a hypothetical situation. We live in times where people are increasingly being persecuted, tortured, and killed for their faith in Christ. Would we be able to pass the test if challenged to do so? To listen again to today's study entitled A Theological Collision, Visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look up program ROM16. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And, of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. 
And when you contact us, please consider helping support this teaching ministry with a one-time gift or by becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner. Your gifts allow us to purchase airtime on radio stations around the country and throughout the world via the Internet. Tomorrow we conclude our look at a theological collision. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.